Hey, Two Cities Church, welcome to our online gathering. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're tuning in for the first time, let me just tell you a little bit about our church. We are a four-year-old church located in the heart of Winston-Salem, and we had about 30 people four years ago, college grads and young couples and young families, move their lives to plant a church in the heart of Winston-Salem. The hope was to reach every man, woman, and child with the gospel and to give them repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. We came with a heart for the lost and a heart for the least. And and it's been an incredible four years, but a very strange last three or four months, hasn't it? Uh, We have been for the last now, I believe it is 14 weeks in an online only environment. Uh, But I have some good news. You you may have seen the video this last week. We are going to be transitioning out of online only. And now simultaneously, we're going to have online services on Sunday, but we're going to have a live service on Thursday. And let me just take a moment and explain this to you and what we're doing and why we're doing it. First, let me say this. Uh, We're calling this the reopening in many ways, not of our church, because our church has been opened. Uh, we've onboarded people through the weekend or they've gotten more connected. Uh, we've launched community groups. Uh, we've, we actually added a service on Sundays. Um, people are coming to Christ. People are being discipled. Groups are meeting. Uh, the church is open, but the buildings have been closed. And let me just explain this. The buildings have been closed because for a short season, it was not the best tool for us to use based on all the situations and all the circumstances around us. And so we had to transition to the tool of online only, the tool of video and live streaming and Zoom and all of that. And we are so grateful to God for all of those tools. Now we're gonna be able to once again use the tool of the building. That's why we call, by the way, the buildings facilities because they facilitate ministry. So let me just give you two dates that you're gonna need to know. The first date is the date that we're hoping to fully, finally come back together with multiple services in kids ministry. And here's the date, Sunday, August 16th. Okay. We're setting that date. We're saying, Hey, it's a little bit of a moving target. Um, we're going to continue to listen and watch and learn and see if that's the best time. But we are, we are moving toward that date. Could be moved up a little bit. We're not sure at this point, but what I'm really excited about is in less than two weeks, we're launching our Thursday night service. It'll be Thursday, June 25th at 6:30, And, and that's going to be an incredible time. Let me just tell you a little bit about those services so that you can have the right expectations and I can clarify everything for you. Uh, the first thing I want to say about our Thursday night service at 6:30 is, um, if, you still have some reservations about coming to these buildings at this time. That's okay. If you don't feel comfortable coming, that's fine. That's why, again, we're the body of Christ. We're going to be flexible. We're going to be nimble in this season. Let me tell you a second thing. That's why, by the way, we're going to have our online services. Secondly, let me say this. Uh, We want you to come with the right expectations. There will be uh, while we have our Thursday night service here at 6.30, no kids ministry, there will be no child care, there will be limited seats, you're going to have to reserve your seat online, uh, and it will also be the service that we're recording to, uh, to show on Sundays online. And so what we actually think is going to happen is we actually think that by coming together on Thursdays, we're going to bring the worship and word back together, it's going to make a better online experience for the rest of you who aren't able to make it on Thursdays to watch online. Um, finally, what we want to say about Thursday night services is, and this will continue as we head into August as well and, and go back to multiple services and kids ministry, we would just say take the next, uh, necessary precautions on your end. We would say, hey, use sanctified common sense. Um, you know, if you've had a fever, don't come. If you have a fever, don't come. Um, if you're overly anxious about it, please don't come. 
um, we would say, hey, we're going to have hand sanitizer stations. We're going to ask everybody, you know, to, uh, to keep proper social distancing, but we're going to put that on the individual. But let me just say, overall, we are incredibly exciting. You're going to hear more, uh, you're going to hear more details and more information about how we're even going to be launching a brand new series starting that Thursday night. So would you pray for me as we head in and we're taking our next step, not knowing everything about the future, but knowing that we believe this is the right next step for our church. Let's continue to pray for unity of the church and let's celebrate together that we're making progress. Pray with me. Lord, I just come to you right now in Jesus' name. And we just thank you that um, we are able to, in, in kind of a tiered way, we're able to come back together starting Thursday night, June 25th, Lord. Lord, we have longed for it. As, we, as many of us have felt like we are just, life has not gone back to normal at all. Many of us are still working from home. Um, we, we, many people still feel very stuck at home. Lord, we pray that this would be an incredible opportunity to come together, to hear the word, to sing together, and to be together as a church. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been following along with us, we have been in the book of Galatians. And just so you know, whenever we think about Sundays and services, we never think just in terms of individual sermons. We think in terms of an entire series, right? Because in our series, we tend to go through books of the Bible, and we really believe that it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. And what's interesting about this series of Galatians, and, and we've preached through many books of the Bible uh, since we've planted this church four years ago, what's made the book of Galatians different, obviously, is that the first three weeks, everybody was here. You guys were in this room. We were singing together. We were, we were in the word together in the same room. And then immediately, everything changed. And for the last three months, we have been online only through the book of Galatians. So first three weeks in person, last three months, online only. In one sense, we've been going through the book of Galatians and everything around us has changed, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I don't know all the details of your life, but your industry may have changed. Uh, the whole educational system may have changed. I don't know how we think about healthcare may have changed. Uh, how people think about government may have changed. I mean, there's, there's tension in our nation right now. There are so many things that have changed and none of us know for sure what the new and what the next normal looks like. But let me just encourage you because as I've looked back over this series in preparation for this message, I was reminded that though everything around us has changed and that's true, I think it's undeniable. The most important things that God has said, and all of the things that God has said in his word, have not changed. As I looked back and I looked at all of the things that we learned in this book so far together, none of it has changed. God's word is timeless, therefore it's always timely. You know, it's like you're still made in God's image, you're still sinful, broken, fallen, you're still not ultimately in control of your life, you're still going to die, Jesus Christ is still on the throne, there still is a final judgment, every person is headed to heaven or hell based on how they have responded to Jesus and the cross of Christ. And so even as we end this message together, I want you to be reminded of the fundamental truths of this book. If you're joining us and you've not been walking through this book. Let me, just, let me just take one minute and kind of summarize it for us. Paul has come and he has asked these questions throughout the book. And it's kind of all culminating today. But here's the questions he's asked. Are you going to be a religious person, which is all about rituals and rules, or are you going to have a relationship with God? Are you going to all be about the law or are you going to be about the promises of God? Are you going to live in bondage or are you going to walk in freedom? Are you going to be controlled constantly by your flesh or are you going to live and walk in the spirit? 
Are you going to be selfish or are you going to serve others? These are the questions that come up again and again and again in the book of Galatians. And if you'll type to or turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. We're going to finish up the book of Galatians today and we're going to cover a passage of scripture that's often skipped in the book of Galatians. Uh, like many books of the Bible, the very beginning of the book and the very end of the book, it's often like, well, is this the beginning of an email and the end of an email? And are people just saying things to say things? No. These are incredibly important parts of scripture. So if you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter six, verse 11, I'll read this to you. It says this, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now this is interesting. Paul, we don't know for sure if at this point, Paul penned the whole letter of Galatians and just says at the end, Here's, here I'm writing with large letters, or if he takes it from the person who's writing the letter for him, and he grabs the, the, you know, the pen or the quill or whatever, and he finishes writing this section, because here's the truth, this is maybe a little known fact, but um, there were many letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote that he dictated, but he did not write down himself. For example, you don't need to turn there now, but in, in Romans 16, verse 22, we're told that Tertius is actually the person who wrote down the letter of Romans. Isn't that interesting? Now, Paul told him what to say, but there were often times where Paul would just tell somebody what to write down. It was the word of God spoken through Paul, written down by that individual. But every once in a while, Paul grabs the pen or grabs the quill, and he writes down for himself his own signature, his own name. And he says here, I write with large letters. Now, why did Paul write with large letters? We don't know all the reasons. One reason people say, well, maybe because he had bad eyesight, and we don't know. Um, other people say, well, maybe it was the way that, you know, he signed his letters because, uh, you know, we know from other places in scripture that there were people who were trying to forge uh, Paul's letters and say there were letters coming from Paul that weren't coming from Paul. Um, most people think what Paul's trying to do at the very end of this letter is say, guys, listen, I want to write this last couple things with big letters because it's, it'd be like us saying, hey, I want to make this bold. I want to make this italicized. I want to make this underlined. I want to make this incredibly important. And what Paul's going to do in these last seven or eight verses that we have in chapter six of Galatians. Here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna talk about three things he's been talking about. He's gonna talk about the false teachers and he's gonna warn about the false teachers, the Judaizers, one more time. He's going to one more time talk about Christ and the cross of Christ and he's one more time gonna talk about his personal ministry. All three of those things. One more time, a warning against the false teachers. One more time, he's gonna talk about the cross of Christ and one more time, he's gonna talk about his own ministry. And I want us to see a couple insights that come out of this last portion of scripture. Here's the first insight. The gospel is about interchange, not external experience, or appearance, I'm sorry. The gospel is about interchange, not external appearance. And I want you to see this. This is a huge theme in Paul and in his letters. Here's what he says. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. There he's talking about the Judaizers, the false teachers, who would force you to be circumcised. And I know to us that may sound like a silly idea, but what they were saying is you had Jesus plus circumcision to be a Christian. He says this, who would force you to be circumcised and only in order. So he tells us, Paul actually tells us the motives of false teachers only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Here's what he's telling us, and this is incredibly important. He's saying that what happens in many people's lives, and particularly in these false teachers, but this is a temptation that you, and you can fall into, that I can fall into. He says that people tend to make a lot of decisions about how they act in front of people and what they say and what they teach and what they talk about based on two things. They wanna look good in the flesh. They wanna be not persecuted. That's what he says in that verse, which here's the way we would say it. They want to look good in front of other people and they want to avoid pain. And I, 
I don't know about you, but how many of the decisions that do you make in your life simply to look good in front of others and look good in front of your parents or look good in front of your friends or how many things do you not say or maybe you do say only so that no one will say anything bad against you? Paul's warning us. He says, this is what the false teachers do. They're, They're saying things that you want to hear. And this is really important because this is the difference between building a crowd and building a church. It's very, very, very easy to build a crowd. It's very, very, very hard to build a church. And what he's saying is the Judaizers, these false teachers, they would build a crowd by telling you things you wanted to hear. It's it's actually very easy to build a crowd. The way you build a crowd is, hey, do some inspiring and encouraging messages. Um, Have some great music. Um, Meet people's felt needs. And Jesus himself in his ministry, he had to deal with this. Remember, uh, early on in the ministry of Jesus, He feeds the 5,000 and the groups and his, it, you know, the ministry is growing and growing and growing. And he eventually says, hey, look, the reason that these people are coming out is not because they want the deep spiritual truths that I'm teaching, but the reason that they're coming out is simply because I met some of their basic needs for bread and for fish. And that's why they keep coming back. So this is a big deal. Paul says that what ultimately this comes down to is it comes down to your motives. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. It's about transforming and changing the heart and the soul of a person. And let me just say this. This, this is what this means. This means that there, are, there could be two men or two women in the same church, maybe in the same family, maybe in the same community group, doing the exact same things externally, but doing them for very different motivations. You could have two women and they're both sharing the, sharing the faith. They're both reading their Bible. They're both praying they're both maybe going to church. Uh, they're maybe going to community group, uh, whatever it is. And they could be doing it for two very different reasons. The one could be doing it because that woman's life has been deeply changed by Christ. And out of a love and out of an overflow and out of a joy of what Christ has done for her, she wants to know Christ. That, that's the transformed heart of the believer. But we also know that the, the other woman, and often many of us, the reason that we could do things is, is simply because it's what we've always done. I've heard it said like this before. People often will tra- change, trade in um, attendance for transformation. They will settle for attendance instead of really being transformed by the gospel. They will show up at church. They will show up at student ministry. They will show up at community group. And they will attend, but they will not be transformed and let it touch their heart. So this is what Paul's warning against. And I want you to see what he says. He says that they are afraid to preach the true message. Look at verse 12 one more time. At the end of it, it says this, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's saying the reason that they're talking about circumcision and external things is because they don't want to talk about what really matters and what's the center of Christianity, which is the bloody cross of Christ. Years ago, I had a mentor pastor. He told me this. He said, when, when it comes to false teachers, it's not so much what they say, but what they're afraid to say. It's not so much all the things they say in a message on Sunday. It's what they're afraid to or fail to say. That many false teachers will talk about grace without the cross of Christ. They'll talk about believing without repenting. They'll talk about forgiveness without really dealing with sin. They'll talk about heaven without being very clear on hell. And what we see here is that the, um, the Judaizers, they were not talking about the cross of Christ because they knew that people didn't like it. Here's what he says there. Do you see what it says there? It says that they would be persecuted if they talk honestly about the cross of Christ. Let me just tell you this. 
I can promise you this based on scripture. If you consistently, repeatedly to many people across your whole life, talk about the cross of Christ, somebody somewhere is not going to like it. That's a promise. Because here's the truth about the cross, and I want us to just think about this together for a few minutes, is the cross is offensive and the cross is insulting to human potential. It, the cross assaults and affronts and says there is no such thing as self-salvation. And if you have not personally, and I think it's possible to grow up in church and not do this, to be in a good church and not do this, if you have not personally felt the insult and the offense of the cross, then you don't know the gospel. Let me say it safely. You don't know the gospel as well as you could. Let me, what do I mean by the insult and the offense of the cross? Well, the, the cross offends lots of different people lots of different ways. So it, it defends more liberal-leaning people by saying, listen, God is not tolerant in the way that you think about tolerance. God does not affirm and approve and celebrate all ideologies, perspectives, beliefs, and lifestyles. God does not do that. The cross of Christ is offensive because it says sin is real and sin must be punished. Sin must be forgiven. On the other side, more conservative leaning people, it says, listen, anybody can be saved if they repent and trust in Christ. The worst person from the worst situation who's done the worst things or had the worst things done to them, they can be forgiven. Someone as terrible as a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy if they would repent and believe the gospel, could be forgiven. A Jeffrey Epstein, a person like that, a Harvey Weinstein, some of the worst men and worst women in the world, if they would genuinely repent and trust in Christ, they could be forgiven. And I know that's offensive because I remember the first time I ever said something like that, this was years ago in our church, I said, I said in a sermon something like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, if he repented and believed in Christ, he could be forgiven. <clears throat> and, and after that service, someone came up to me and they said, I can't believe you said that. I hate Jeffrey Dahmer. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. The point is it's offensive to us because it says, actually, guess what? Your sin is massive and it's terrible and it's big, but it's not bigger than the cross. And that's the great hope we have. The great hope we have, it's actually prideful to think, uh, yeah, somehow I'm actually able to sin so bad that God can't forgive me. That's not the truth. The cross is bigger. So he says what they did is they settled for a message that was more palatable to the people they were speaking it to, which was Jesus plus circumcision. Let me tell you two ways Two ways the church in America specifically is tempted to water down the gospel so that we are not persecuted for being very clear on the cross of Christ. The first is by only talking about physical needs. Like, you know, nobody's ever going to get upset if all we ever talk about is the need for education or the need to help with homelessness or the need to help with poverty. And we need to care about all those things. The church must care about all those things. But what we say is that we believe, in, we, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We believe there are temporal needs. We also believe there are eternal needs. We believe the best thing to do is to give somebody bread and tell them about the bread of life. To give somebody water, but tell them about the water of life. So that's the first temptation is we can water down the message by only talking about physical needs. The second way that we water down the message is internally, once we get people into the church, we only talk about felt needs. What I mean by that is we never talk about the cross. Every sermon, every topic, every discussion is about you having new goals and you building new habits and you accomplishing your human potential. 
Or maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's about finances or I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's about family and it's about you being a parent and you being a mom and you being a dad and you being a husband and you, you know, dealing with stress and difficult relationships. And, and again, all of those things are real. But if we stop short and we just talk about people's physical and felt needs and don't talk about people's forever needs. That's, that's the offense of the cross says how you respond to Jesus Christ and what he has done determines your eternal destiny. And we can't water that down. That's the heart of the gospel. And Paul, he's gonna say in a minute, and I want you to see this. He says, that's what changes people's lives. What actually transforms and changes your life is looking fully, solely at the cross. I want you to see what Paul says next. <clears throat> Here's the next big idea. The gospel works and religion doesn't. The gospel works and religion doesn't. I'll show you this right here. He says this. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here's what he's saying. People are telling you to do things that they're not even doing, and therefore they don't even realize it doesn't work. What he's saying is religion and moralism, if you really try to do it, like really, you're going to realize it doesn't work. Like if you really, 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 seriously, most people don't do this and you may never try to actually do this, but really try to be a good person in just one domain or one dimension or one aspect or one area of your life. If you just said, whatever the Bible says about this, I'm going to try to do this in my own strength. I'm going to just try to do it. I'm going to try to be a good dad. I'm going to try to stop being selfish and start serving others. I'm going to start putting other people's interests above my own. Here's what you're going to find out. You are, I am a terrible person. And C.S. Lewis said this, the only person who knows they're bad is the person who's really tried to be good. And what he's saying here is these people are telling you to do things that if they would try to do them, it wouldn't work. They would know it doesn't work. It reminds me of every once in a while, and we're probably more than every once in a while, like all the time. I see guys and girls who are writing leadership books, and you look on the back and you're like, well, they've never led anything, ever. They just have a PhD or something in leadership, and they read a couple good quotes, and they read two biographies on leadership, and they have three diagrams on leadership, and so they're going to tell us about leadership when they don't know anything about it. When they've never led people, they've never led an organization, they've never led a family. And you read it and you go, well, this sounds all really nice and good until I try to apply it. And what he's saying is, if you try to, to apply a religious moralistic mentality, it's only going to make things worse. I'll give you an example. We've recently started to work with our, I talk about my kids a lot, we've got eight years old, six years old, four years old, um, and we've been working with them just recently on, on godly characteristics that arise out of Scripture. And you, in what I've realized, and we're very early on in this, but as I'm teaching these godly characteristics to my kids, I'm realizing I fail and fall short on all these. And every time I'm teaching them respect or some other characteristic, I've got to stop and say, listen, guys, dad struggles with this still. And let me tell you what you do when you're not respectful. We need to confess it. We need to repent. We need to ask for the grace of God. And that's why I'm saying here, religion doesn't work. The gospel does. The gospel works. I'm not being overly pragmatic or overly practical. I'm saying it literally, it's, it actually works in real life. It's like, what works in the most, because one of the questions you want to ask for, does something work, is will it work under the worst situations possible? And the answer is the gospel works in the worst situations. In other words, me living like a sinner saved by grace. I believe two people committed to living as sinners saved by grace, any marriage could be restored. Any relationship can be restored. 
that it may be a very long path forward, but I believe a commitment to living as a sinner saved by grace is the way to personal transformation in our lives, which leads to the next big thing Paul says. And maybe the most surprising thing that Paul says, the gospel is about boasting only in the cross. Boasting only, I want you to see this, verse 14. Maybe one of my favorite verses in the book of Galatians. Paul says this, but far be it from me, or another way to say it, may it never be, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So I just want to talk about what does it mean? I mean, I just want us to feel, sometimes we read verses and we don't let the strangeness of it affect us. What Paul's saying here, first of all, let's just break it down. Paul's saying I need to, that we're all going to boast in something, right? Now the Bible's against prideful, internal, all about me boasting, right? But most people, their whole social media account is about boasting in themselves or boasting in their family or boasting in their career. We, we contend we can boast about our, you know, people boast about their finances, people boast about their careers, people boast about their personalities, people boast about their looks. What's interesting is Paul here says, here's what I'm going to boast about, an instrument of death. It'd be like us saying today, if you're going to boast, boast in lynching. If you're going to boast, boast in the electric chair. If you're going to boast, boast in lethal injection. You're like, what? I mean, you should feel that. You should be shocked and surprised. Why would we boast in an instrument of death? Well, let me take one step back and talk to, talk to you about what boasting means. Boasting in this text and in this context and in most of the Bible, the idea of boasting comes from the idea of what men, men would do before they would go to war. This is so helpful to understand this. This is, kind of un- this is one of the keys, I think, that unlocks this, this verse. What, what they would do is they would, they would have, before they'd go to war and fight a battle, they would have what they called a boast. Like the, one of the most famous boasts that many of you have seen is the boast in Braveheart, right? It's when Mel Gibson, um, William Wallace, okay, when he, when he gathers all of the men up and they're on their horses, and I won't give you the whole speech, but he says, you know, many years from now, lying in your beds, you know, he, and he gives this incredible speech, okay, that I've probably watched a couple hundred times, you know, because what, what, what he's doing, what is he doing in that speech? He's getting those men ready. He's saying, basically, we've got, the, a boast was this, we have what it takes to fight this battle. It would usually be some version of how great we are and how terrible they are. That would be a boast. Now, what's interesting is Paul's saying, our ultimate boast, this is so powerful, our ultimate confidence needs to be not anything that we have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Paul says that's what he boasts in. That's what he celebrates. What does that mean practically? It means that you realize, and again, this is why the gospel is so offensive. Here's what this means. All you deserve, all I deserve, because we are a sinner, all we deserve is is condemnation, judgment, and eternal hell. Now, most people don't believe that. Most Christians don't even consciously think about that. But if you would think for a moment, what I deserve is hell, condemnation from God, eternal judgment by God, the wrath of God upon me. But I have a family and I have kids and I have a church and I have forgiveness and I have a house. You realize that every good thing that you have in your life is because of what Christ has done for you. I think about my own life. I think about how the woman I married and the marriage that I have and the kids that I have and the family that I'm raising and of course the job that I have 
and the location of where I live and how I made decisions about my time and my money and, and my relationships, all of it flows from what Christ has done for me. And so what he's saying is that the role of a Christian is to boast in that, that you were designed, you're, you were made to boast in something. And if you don't consciously, consistently boast in the cross, you're going to find yourself boasting in something else or in yourself. And, and how you know what you boast in is what do you turn to when your life is the worst? Because a lot of people during COVID, or maybe it's the tensions even right now that are going on in our nation, people will turn to something. They'll go, well, at least I have my job. Well, at least I have savings. Well, I don't know. At least I have my family. At least I have my health. And it's like, well, okay, that, that can't, all, everything I just said could all be taken away from us. So we have to have something deeper underneath all of that. In fact, what does it mean when we share Christ with others? What are we doing? We're boasting in the cross. Like, how do you practically boast in the cross? You talk about Jesus a lot. Not in weird ways, but just in real ways. Go, I love Jesus. He really changed my life. When I, and that's what Paul says. Paul says, look, I boast in the cross. Why? Because I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. In other words, what Paul says is the cross, when I trust in the cross, when I boast in the cross, it transforms me and it changes me in such a way that the world is dead to me. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't mean that he's dead to the people of the world. Paul loved the people of the world with all his heart. Paul gave his whole life for the people of the world. What it means that you're dead to the world, it means you're dead to the value system of the world, the values of the world, the, the temptations of the world. You're like, look, I don't need it. I don't need your approval. I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your acceptance. I, I don't need to find righteousness in, any, in, in what I do in the world. I have found all of that in God, which Paul makes a dramatic statement. Next, out of this, he says, look in verse 15. Here's what he says. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Now, all the guys who just got circumcised are like, I wish you would have told me that beforehand, okay? <laughs> he says, hey, it doesn't matter. Whether you're circumcised, whether you're uncircumcised, he says, that doesn't matter. What matters is a new creation. Here's the other big idea. The gospel makes you new, not nice. This is the, I mean, I, I, I was overwhelmed this week in preparation to realize once again the radical nature of the gospel. It's about boasting in a crucified Lord and Savior who was our substitute for sin. And when I do that, when I see the cross as great and myself as a sinner who desperately needs the grace of God, that transforms and changes me into not a nice person, but a new person. Now, a Christian may be nice, I'm saying, but the, the, the heart of it is to be made new. Most people think religion just makes you nice. This is why maybe you've had this experience before. I've had this experience many times. Every time I meet a Mormon, a real Mormon, you know what I meet? Somebody who's very nice. Like I've been told before, people are like, I hope, I hope my neighbor's a Mormon. Why? Because Mormons are the best neighbors ever. Why? Because they're just incredibly nice. Because that's what religion and that's what moralism, well, it can go in other ways too, but that's one of the things that religion can often do. It can domesticate a person and say, well, get in line and do these things and don't do these things. And what's radical, again, this goes back to the inner nature, is that when you come to Christ, it changes you at the deepest levels. The Bible talks about being born again be given the mind of Christ, going from darkness to light, going from death to life. You know, we're ultimately headed, the Bible talks about, Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, behold, I'm going to one day make all things new. But one of the first things that Christ makes new while we're still on this earth is believers. He transforms and he changes them and he gives them new desires and he gives them new taste buds and he gives them new loves and he gives them new hates. 
And I can remember this, and I think anybody, anyone uh, watching this, who can remember what it was like when you first came to Christ, and I know we, we've all came to Christ out of different circumstances and at different times, but when you first come to faith in Christ, that I remember just a desire to read my Bible, a desire to pray, a desire to obey my parents. I, I remember early on, I was a brand new Christian and I was obeying, I was trying to obey my parents and just was trying to change so many things in my life. And I remember my dad, I was 16 or 17, my dad came in the room one night and he said, you don't have to obey me right away all the time, everything I say. He said some version of me, you're almost being too obedient. But that was what God was doing in my heart. God was transforming and changing me into a new creation, which leads to the last thing that Paul says, which is this found in uh, verse 17. The gospel makes a mark on your life. The gospel makes a mark on your life. Look at me at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, that is a direct confrontation against circumcision, because what the false teachers were saying is that the way that you were made right with God is that you make some kind of branding or some kind of mark on your body, circumcision. And Paul is saying, this is such a powerful idea as well. Paul is saying, if you want to know what are the marks of Jesus on the Christian, it's the suffering that the body undergoes as we are on mission as Christians and as the church to get the message and mission and ministry of Jesus to new and more people. And so if you would ask the question, how does the gospel go forward? How did we get from 12 disciples to one or two billion people on earth who say they worship Jesus? There's actually one word. One word, if you were to say, how do you go from 12 disciples to one billion people? Suffering. The only way the gospel ever breaks into a college campus or breaks into a business area or breaks into a new city or breaks into a new agent stage in a certain area or a certain school? The answer is somebody decided, I'm going to be willing to suffer. Because Paul says this in Philippians, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he says. Paul first says, you know, I fill up in my flesh uh, the afflictions, what is, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Which is, to some people, that's a confusing passage. Here's what Paul means. They can't beat Christ up, so they beat me up instead. And when I preach the offense and the assault of the gospel, they hate it. So they shame me and they stone me. If you go and you read, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was stoned, he was beaten with rods, he was beaten with lashes, he was shipwrecked many times, he was without, he was without food, he was without water, he was without shelter. And Paul says, that's what marks my life. What marks my life is the suffering that I've undergone to spread the message of Christ. Now how many of us though, we try to be marked by everything else. We try to avoid those marks. We'd rather be, here's what we want to be marked by. We want to be marked by uh, the brands of clothes that we wear. We, we, you know, we want to be marked by the car that we drive. We, we all want to have all of these external things that define us. I, I found it very interesting, and I'm, I'm not against tattoos. I found it very interesting, though, the uh, ubiquitous nature of tattoos in our culture today. And I think one of it is it's a deep desire to be marked by something. Right? I mean, you, you talk to people about their stories of their tattoos, and it's, it's a name that means a lot. It's, it's, a, um, it's a verse that means a lot for Christians. It's a word that means a lot. It's a symbol that means a lot. It's a picture that means a lot. 
And, I, and I, I've not talked to a lot of people, but as I've, as I've listened and learned some about tattoos, one of the things that uh, someone said to me is, it really is, it seems to be about something about the permanent nature of the mark and the pain of getting the mark. <laughs> that, that, that two things that are you know, true about tattoos are they are painful and they are permanent. And there's something about that that marks you. And Paul's saying what he was ultimately marked by was a willingness to suffer for Christ. So he says these hard words, and then he says a final word of encouragement in verse 18. He says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul ends, and he speaks to a community, brothers, but he speaks to their spirit. I want you to know this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And Paul ends, and he speaks directly to the soul and the spirit of the people. Because the truth is, one day you will die, right? And that will be the end of your body, and that will be the end of your time on earth, but that will not be the end of you. And so as Paul gives a final word to a people that he has said a lot of hard things to, to a people that he may never, ever see again, we don't know if Paul ever even wrote another letter to them. Communication was different. He didn't know if he'd see them again. He didn't know how they'd respond to all the false teachers in the future, to all of the temptations of religion, to the, to the temptation to walk in the flesh instead of the spirit. So he ends with this beautiful phrase of speaking directly to them, and he says this, may the grace of God be with you. What a great way to end the book of Galatians. I want you to know this, that every book that Paul wrote, all 13 of his letters, every one of them starts with the grace of God to you. And I want you to know this, every one of them ends with the grace of God with you. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, may the grace of God be with you. And there are two grace of God. There are two dimensions to the grace of God. Both of them flow from the cross of Christ. The first grace of God is the grace of God that forgives. And some of you need to experience that grace of God for the very first time. And it's humbling and it's humiliating to ask for forgiveness. If you've ever sinned against someone, you felt that. You felt that I'm asking for forgiveness, which is admitting that I'm wrong and admitting that I need help. That's the humility of the cross. The cross says, all I bring to my salvation is my sin and I need to be forgiven. And we can, throughout the course of our life, we need to continue to go back to the forgiving grace of God. But also, we need the transforming, empowering, changing grace of God in our lives. Which said, God, help me to boast in the right things, not myself. It's, it's, it's Lord, I'm gonna get up and I am going to the best of my ability, Lord, by the grace of God, I'm going to walk in the spirit today and I'm not gonna walk in the flesh. Lord, by the grace of God, I am not going to be about the law. I'm going to be about the promises of God. Lord, by the grace of God, I'm going to stop being so selfish. And I'm going to start bearing the burdens, the burdens of my brothers and sisters in Christ, the burdens that are in my city. And what I'm going to do, and the way that that's going to happen is not by me trying and training harder. The way that that is going to happen is not by me just changing my external, but working on my internal. And the way that that happens is that I'm going to continue to look to the cross of Christ. I'm going to look to the cross of Christ, and that's what I'm going to boast in. Whatever you have next, as you head into this new and next normal, whether it's in your industry, in your family, in your business, with school, some of you are going to college, some of you are going to high school, some of you are entering new careers, some of you are... are having kids for the first time, walking into marriage, wherever you are, know the grace of God will be there for you because of the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for the offensive and radical message that we are so sinful Christ had to die for us. 
And we are so loved that Christ was willing to die for us. Lord, help us to boast in Christ, boast in the cross, not boast in ourselves, not boast in our personality. Lord, help us to be more marked by our willingness to suffer and live out the gospel and the mission of the church than to be marked by any brand of clothing we wear or any group we're a part of or any political party that we are a part of, Lord. Lord, give us so much grace, the forgiving grace of God, the transforming grace of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.